Hello and welcome to episode 7 of Matt D'Elia is Confused. This episode is actually, this guest is our, is our first um, audience suggested guest. Uh, so uh, if you ever have uh, ideas for guests that you think might be good for me to talk to or me to pick their brain or me to argue with or anything like that, Definitely uh, write me on Twitter uh, at Matt D'Elia and um, I will uh, strongly consider your suggestion. Uh, and this guest, the, the, the aforementioned first audience suggested guest is an intense person to talk to. He is a former white supremacist leader, uh, a reformed white supremacist, I should say. He now writes about his uh, past life of hate and how to get out of it. His name is Arno Michaelis. He was the lead singer of a neo-Nazi heavy metal band called Centurion. And now he does the exact opposite of what he used to do, which is that he preaches peace and uh, has really, really, really interesting things to say about it. And it's not your typical... Uh, the typical thing you hear on the subject. Um, we talk about a lot of shit in this, uh, things from white nationalism to Antifa to a whole lot of extremist ideologies and online radicalization. And Arno has an extremely um, unique and insightful and knowledgeable point of view on all this stuff. And I think it's something that's on our mind Lately, uh, nationally, the things that are um, going on in the country, I, I just think this was a really, really uh, well-timed conversation. And I'm really excited for you guys to hear it. Um, I hope you guys dig it. Uh, this is me and Arno Michaelis. Okay. Arno, thank you for joining me on Matt D'Elia is Confused. I'm really excited to have you here. You're actually the first audience-suggested guest, and um, I actually immediately was like, that's a fucking great suggestion. So I'm really happy to have you as a guest to talk about some of this stuff. Um, if you maybe wanted to, just for our listeners, in your own words, uh, just however long or short you want to make it about yourself, uh, just as like a little introduction in, in your own words. Sure, and uh, I'm, I'm honored to be the first audience-suggested gift, and uh, I'm often confused myself, so I, <laughs> I think it's a great fit. Perfect. Um, my name is Arno Michaelis. I am a speaker, an author, a filmmaker, and a counter-violent extremism consultant, and all the work that I do is kind of informed and driven by my past as a white nationalist skinhead from 1987 to 1994. 87 and 94. Got it. Um, so yeah, I guess just to get into it sort of, sort of in order. I mean, I know you've done a lot and there's so much I want to talk to you about cause, cause your arc and your trajectory is, is really, um, particularly fascinating. I, I, I kind of wanted to start, though, I guess, with the how this kind of thing starts. Like, 
you getting into this uh, uh, from just like the beginning of where you were, your situation, uh, familial, whatever it was that sort of primed you sort of maybe to be open to some kind of ideology, like, like the one you kind of fell into. Sure. Uh, it, it's, it's a common, um, assumption that people who get involved in violent extremist groups come from a really stark background where mm-hmm. there's like severe abuse and poverty. And, and quite often that is the case. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in my case, I was a bit of an outlier. Mm. I grew up in a very well-to-do suburb of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Nice house, nice neighborhood. I never went hungry. I never took a beating. My parents were together. They both loved me very much, and they let me know that at every turn. In fact, growing up, like every adult in my life was fawning over me constantly, mm. saying, I'm, he's so wonderful, he's so gifted. Right. He's, so bright, he can do anything he wants to do, and I, on paper, at first glance, everything looked fantastic, mm-hmm. but my father's an alcoholic, and his drinking put a lot of pressure on my mom, who at times worked two jobs to keep the bills paid and keep the lights on in her nice house in a nice neighborhood, mm-hmm. and my, my dad wasn't abusive, he, he was actually, uh, in, and remains, a, a fun drunk. When, when Dad was drunk and I was a little kid, we were going to shoot fireworks and shoot pistols in the basement. Like, well, it could be more fun for right. a little boy. Uh, but his, just his constant partying and, and the, the other trappings of alcoholism made his relationship with my mom just suck. And, and my mom was constantly miserable and mm-hmm. constantly stressed out. And I could sense that as a kid, and I started lashing out at other kids. Uh, my, my first victim was really my younger brother, mm. who uh, I'm three years older than. And it, the sibling, you know, bullying and fighting is kind of commonplace, but I took it to another level. I, right. I would pin down my younger brother and take a squeeze bottle of yellow mustard and put it in his nostrils and like squirt it till it came out of his mouth. Holy shit. Okay. Yeah. And that's intense. That's not come after yeah. a butcher knife response, which you can't blame him for. But sure. Yeah. It, it was, again, I'm just mentioning cause it's, it's extreme. It yeah. 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 Please. Yeah. Sibling squabbling. Um, and then I graduated to bullying at school. I was a bully on the school bus in kindergarten. I started to get a kick out of, uh, causing dismay to, to adults mm. and, and causing disruption to school. And it, it very much became like an addiction mm. to where I, I needed to, to cause that kind of chaos in order to get the stimulation I needed. And um, like an addiction, it, I, I'm an alcoholic as well. Mm-hmm. And, and the first time I drank, I was 14 years old, and I probably had four or five beers and I passed out. Uh, when I quit drinking in 2004, my magic number was 18 beers, which is how much I could drink and still function the next day. Wow. So it, it's and that's common with any form of substance abuse. Like the the amount of the substance that gets you high the first time, mm-hmm. five times later doesn't. You have to keep escalating the amount of substance to get the same kind of high. Right. And my antisocial behavior functioned in very much the same way. Mm-hmm. So it escalated from bullying on the school bus to fights in the schoolyard to breaking and entering, the vandalism, burglary, fights on the street. And I started drinking when I was 14. And by the time I'm 16, I was a full-blown alcoholic. 
I had been violent since I was a little kid, and I was very familiar with violence. Mm-hmm. And I got in a lot of fights, and I'm, I'm not very coordinated and not a very good fighter, so I kind of led with my face, <laughs> and I got hit a lot, and I, I convinced myself that I like to get hit. Right. And that that's who I was when I was 16, and I heard white power skinhead music mm. that told me I was a warrior fighting for the white race, which was in danger of extinction at the hands of a genocide that's been plotted by Jewish people for the past 2,000 years. So as ridiculous as that should sound to any thinking person, to 16-year-old Arno, it was like literally music to my ears. Uh, Best of all, because it really pissed people off. Right, right, right. And that became part of it, yeah. Right. So I have an addiction to pissing people off, and now I get like the, the most refined hardcore means of pissing people off that i've ever come across in my life right and that was the big attraction to it for me and so that that's how it all started so music then in your case well you said around 87 but when when was this around the time you started to get into the the music scene and then that drew drew you into that well i i I actually um was i i was into punk and I've been into punk since sixth grade really but I, I it was really when I was about 14 that I started like getting out into the city and mm. around Wisconsin and some of the Rust Belt towns that had really like amazing hardcore punk scenes back mm. then that are just legendary and I, I spent a couple of years immersed in that before uh, becoming a white nationalist skinhead and, and I I loved it I, I loved it and, and, and it's important to understand that, like, punk is a pretty big tent. Right. It always has been. Like, right. And, and kind of the, the beauty of punk is that you can't really pigeonhole it. Mm-hmm. But to to me, punk was just about breaking shit. Right. And pissing people off and, and lashing out. And um, back in the 80s, as, as today, uh, there's a, a good chunk of the punk scene who are very, like, activist kind of oriented. Mm-hmm. And in the late 80s, we called them peace punks. And they mm-hmm. would do shit like... They, you know, said that Coors Brewery had unfair hiring practices. They didn't hire black and Latino people, so boycott Coors. And I was like, I didn't care one way or another who Coors hired or didn't uh-huh. hire, but I hated the peace punks. Right. So I, right. I would actually spend the extra couple bucks to get Coors, which was like a premium beer compared to the shit that I usually drank. Sure. And I, I even had a Coors hat, and I would sit outside of punk shows getting wasted on Coors, like, just to thumb my nose at the Peace Punks. And if they didn't like it, I'll, I'd put my fist in them. Right. Like, so I was, right. I was very ripe for for to just get a swastika out of the mix. Right. And uh, it, it's a very natural progression. So it was just kind of the, the attitude in general that was swirling around you, that you were swirling around in, was sort of just anti-anything, really. And then that sort of led to this, specifically to the ideology that you ended up in, which was this skinhead Nazi thing, right? Yeah, exactly. And, and it was, and you're, you're right, the, the first attraction was like, this just purely repulses people, that's awesome. Right. Like, sign me up. But then once you start doing it, every and you, you adopt this white nationalist lens to look at the world through, now it all starts like oh it all starts making sense now like this is right. back in the late 80s is when white kids first started getting into rap mm-hmm. listening to public enemy nwa and and in in delicious irony um 
when I was in sixth and seventh grade, I was a break dancer. Hmm. Like I, I saw Run DMC in 1984 along with like Grandmaster Flash. And uh, you know, I was very often the only white kid around and I, and I loved hip hop and wow. I, I loved that scene. But once it started getting trendy, like I can't do that anymore. You know, I'm done with this. Now I'm going to get into punk. Um, so it, it, now through this white nationalist lens, when I'm seeing white kids running around with public enemy shirts and MTV is the vehicle for it. And there's United colors of Benetton billboards with like, 10 models of this spectrum of complexions. Right. All of a sudden, oh, wow, you know, the Jews really are trying to to destroy the white race with all this race mixing and promotion of black culture, and now it all makes sense. Right. And so it, 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 I went pretty quickly from being a just a drunken hooligan to a, a very militant white nationalist, and as my friends and I radiated hostility and hate and violence out into the world, the world has a tendency to reflect that. Right. And within a, six months, my best friend, Pat, who I started the gang with, and we also started our own skinhead bang, uh, band with, uh, Pat went to prison for shooting a kid that came to do a drive-by in our house. Wow. Within a couple of years, another very close friend of mine was shot and killed in a street fight as he was out practicing hate and violence as I had taught him to do. Right. And rather than take these misfortunes that we really did bring upon ourselves as a wake-up call, we just spun them to suit the narrative. Like, we spun everything else that we encountered every day of our lives. Right. And uh, it, it took an incredible amount of energy to do that. Right. So it's basically, there's there's the almost the hatefulness, the spitefulness on its own, and then it just needs a channel w- through which it can make sense to come out of, right? So if you're running around as uh, you're angry or you've been traumatized or however you want to put it, I'm sure it can be any of those things. The thing that is available to you to express that hatefulness sort of takes the forefront, right? I mean, in your case, you are white and it was easy for you, especially because the music scene you were in to sort of find that avenue. And therefore that was the one you found is what it kind of sounds like to me, because as you're describing, as you described before, you, you weren't born into this, so to speak. You know, your parents were not telling you this stuff as as fact, whereas I think a lot of people assume that, as you said, every person that gets indoctrinated into any kind of hateful ideology, white supremacy included, is it, you assume that they're brought up that way and they're sort of indoctrinated from their parents in a top-down way. But for you, and not for everybody, obviously, but in your case, this that's not what happened, really. It was just this sort of anger out at the world that ended up getting filtered through the filter through which you could express it right is that a right way to put it you think oh yeah exactly yeah i think you nailed it Matt. It, it's I, i've been working in counterviolent extremism internationally for going on a decade now and i, I work we call ourselves formers mm. as in former violent extremists and I've worked with formers of every stripe you can imagine. Mm-hmm. I, I know a ton of other white nationalist formers. I know a ton of former jihadists. Um, I work with a lot of former street gang members. One of my closest friends is a guy in Denmark who's a former Antifa. Mm-hmm. So, like, I, I've worked with formers of every imaginable violent extremist narrative, and every single one of them um, has common threads. And one of the common threads is is that the particular flavor of violent extremism 
tends to be an arbitrary thing. Right. Now, obviously, like a white kid is going to be more susceptible to white nationalism than a black kid is. Sure. But I, I've seen black kids. I, I've seen especially Latino kids. Like uh, Latino men are one of the fastest growing demographic of what we call the alt right in, in the United States. And they buy the what's essentially a white nationalist narrative, hook, line, and sinker. So it, it's not an exclusive to any particular demographic. Yeah. There's there's a long history of like self-loathing Jews becoming Nazis, sure. uh, a long history of self-loathing gay men becoming Nazis. Mm. So it, it's not just like oh, you know, if you're a straight white dude, you're going to become a white nationalist. Okay. I, I honestly think when I was 16. If somebody could have convinced me that, see, I saw I saw the status quo as MTV and Public Enemy and United Colors of Benetton. Uh-huh. But if someone could have convinced me that the status quo in America was white supremacy, and it had been for 500 years, I could have just as easily become an antifa. Wow! If if someone could have convinced me that you know Islam is the way to the path to holiness and we got to kill all the infidels. I, I could have jogged off to an, an Islamist group. So it, it's right. It, it, it was arbitrary. I was certainly more at risk of white nationalism than anything else. But it, but again, it wasn't. The, the white nationalism did, did not come first. The the suffering, the pain came first, and and that's a common thread you see in all violent extremism. Without right. suffering, without trauma, you're not going to be fucked up enough to want to hate people and hurt people. It's a very simple concept. Right. That's, that's, yeah, that's really fucking interesting. You know, I, um, also just, you know, when you talk about your sort of path toward this, it makes me think about how different it, obviously that avenue is still open, you know, tactile real world sort of finding it through one thing, through another thing, through another thing. But I think now I think, uh, what comes to mind the most in terms of extremism, radicalization of any kind, white nationalism in particular, let's say, because of everything that's going on with Trump and all these shootings that we're, I definitely want to get into. But the Internet now wasn't, or, or rather the Internet wasn't around then when you got into this stuff. Now it is, and I don't want, you know more than me, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I can only imagine this in many ways makes it worse and and harder to sort of get out of. Is that right? I mean, it seems like, you know, the idea of the Internet was, you know, the democratization of information was a very good idea and is a good idea. But when there's no way to verify or vet any site that you might end up on or any voice that you might end up listening to, you can get stuck in this echo chamber kind of thing. And And I feel like that's at least where the national conversation revolves around radicalism radicalization and extremism now is that you know kids male or female whatever and whatever the ideology is are getting hook line and sinker as you put it on the internet whereas when you were coming up when you were young that wasn't even an option so if you could maybe talk about a little bit about the difference between then and 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 now and the and the specific threat maybe that the internet poses because it seems like such a big thing to consider i'm not quite sure exactly what the way in even really is but but i'm sure you have some thoughts on that yeah yeah absolutely i i uh you, you may recall last year in november and this is like a week after the uh tree of life synagogue mm. was attacked in Pittsburgh, 
a photo of a group of Baraboo High School senior boys all giving what looked like a Sikh Heil salute. I remember that. Light. Yeah, I do remember that, and, yeah. Yeah, it went like super viral, and the whole world was like up in arms. Mm-hmm. And Baraboo's in Wisconsin. We're on base. It's about a two, three-hour drive for me. But mm-hmm. I went out there um, with Pardeep Singh Kalika, who is the, the co-author of my new book, The Gift of Our Wounds, and Pardeep and I talked to the kids who were in that photo, and we also did a talk for the entire school. And this is what I told them. I, I, and I, I, I was going to kick out of this. It makes me feel very old, but it's still pretty funny. Like, and my bread and butter has been talking to high school and middle school kids. So mm-hmm. I do it all the time. But as soon as you get in front of a bunch of high school kids and, and the words, when I was a kid, <laughs> like, come out of your mouth. And right, play yeah. Yeah, then you like, become, okay, your, but, you become it's, your dad. It's yeah. really the only way to put it. Yeah. And what I told these kids, I'm like, I get your teen angst. You know, I, I get what it's like to be a teenager. If you put 10 teenagers in a room with a big red button that says, don't press this button or the whole world will be pissed off at you. Right. They're going to be fighting each other over who gets to press the button. <laughs> right. That's yeah. Just yeah. Teenager 101. And I'm sure teenagers a thousand years ago were the same way. Right. Um, and so that's where the where, where I was a kid came in. So I'm like, <laughs> when I was a kid, right. I, I had to go piss people off one-to-one, like face-to-face, person-to-person. Like, I did it the old-fashioned way. Yeah, you kids have it so easy. You can do it from afar, yeah. You just take one picture, you put it on the interwebs, (laughs) and everybody's pissed off in five minutes. I kind of, I I made a joke out of it, and I I think humor is really important. Yeah. It's fun. To, it, it, it's important to be like goofy, even in the in the face of atrocity, because it's just, it's a survival mechanism that helps us not be subject to this horror, and it helps us connect with each other as well. So I couldn't agree more. Yeah, things for me to kind of leverage talking to these kids, and I did, and they kind of chuckled, and then I I brought it home to what the point was, and I said, now the issue is, is that I've been to Auschwitz. I've been to a place where every speck of dirt, every blade of grass, every leaf on every tree and every drop of water is literally infused with the physical remains of millions of people who were systematically murdered because of who they were by people giving salutes like you guys did in that photo. Right. And that's why it's not fucking funny. Right. And that's why people get pissed off. Yeah. And and while you might be pissed off and there might be something wrong in your life, like that's cool. Like let's talk about that. But you got to understand that with this, what you're poking at, like it, it's not something to poke at. It's not funny. Right. And, and, you know, and I, I talk more about my past too, but I think that's a good example of the big difference between pre-internet and post-internet radicalization procedures. And uh, there's all sorts of elements to this like you'd certainly write a phd on it right. uh, but i think the biggest element is is this the ease with which the narrative spreads yeah. and the ease with which uh people attached to the narrative are able to silo themselves um as far as the information that they take in because right. It, it, again back in my day i literally had to like expend energy to 
go find a racist newspaper somewhere. I had to order it mm. through snail mail. I, <laughs> like I, right. I, the books I read, the, the music I listened to, you know, you couldn't get it at a normal record store. You had to like, it, it was, you had to like go through all these clandestine, which kind of like added to the appeal. Sure. Yeah. But, uh, it was hard to get that shit. And nowadays you can get anything you want instantly, digitally, and um, the the siloing effect like happens automatically. I I do a ton of work with Facebook. I think they're a great company. I think they're actually doing. They've dedicated a ton of time and resources to make their platform unfriendly to hate of any sort. Yeah. But all that being said, just the way that it works is it shows you more of what you like and less of what you don't like. Right. So if if you're liking all the speeches about the invading aliens from our South, you're going to see more content like that. And yeah. um, that that's how you, you so now it, it, it's an echo chamber where you all that happens is your confirmation bias is being satisfied and fed every single day. And uh, you can very quickly lose track of that if you were even aware of it in the first place. And it, it makes the nature of truth like a malleable thing. Right. Um, I, I see, and, and I, this isn't exclusive to right-wingers. Left-wingers do it just as much, yeah. just in different ways. But, like, after the the El Paso shooter was plainly, like, uses the exact same language as this administration in his manifesto about the country being infested and invaded, yeah. you, you go into the right-wing Twitterverse and people are like, his father was a progressive therapist right 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 and that's why it happened and so now yeah. and, and it catches fire and you'll see like mainstream conversation of this issue like seemingly sane people trying to pin this on his dad being a progressive therapist right and, and ignoring the the words that came right out of his fucking mouth i know so it, it, and that's what they believe to be true yeah so it, it's it's certainly a, a a crazy dynamic that the internet introduces um I, I have to see that the internet in general and social media and all the trappings of it as an asset, though. Right. Because if we don't see it as an opportunity to uh, better prepare us and better equip us to to cultivate good things in the world, like, we're fucked. Right. <laughs> Seriously, like, yeah. I'm, I'm moving on to this. I'm going to be a dive instructor. Just unplugging <laughs> everything. Fuck right. all y'all. Like, if, if there's no way to... <laughs> There's no way to use social media for good, and, and honestly, I think a lot more good comes of it than than not. Yeah, it's just that good doesn't get people's attention. Like right. Yeah. Yeah. The, the horror does. Yeah, I mean, the internet. The, the I, it feels like a tool we weren't ready for because it's a tool that can obviously be used for construction, and we don't need to point out those instances. But it can clearly be used for destruction, and I don't think that was something that was anticipated. Uh, you know, I was young when the internet even became a thing. And I just thought like, this is the most magical fucking thing that could ever right. happen. You know, I mean, kids now they grow up with it. So it's less of like a wow thing, but I think it's generally understood as it's, 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 it's put, it's, it's something that can, can put everyone in touch and can be a place where anyone can learn anything. And that's a great thing. I think the thing where, and, and even, you know, you talk about that picture of those kids in Wisconsin doing the Nazi salute. Uh, it, that's the kind of thing that, say, when you were that age, say you took a picture, you were in a picture like that, the world wouldn't have been able to see it. And the world seeing it is actually, I think, 
good because for me, everything, everything in light is better than in darkness, you know? So I'd rather know what people are up to than not know. So that being out there and being known and these ideologies, even of the darker recesses of whatever it is, you know, not even just white nationalism, any kind of dark sort of extremist ideology. I think that it's better to have it out and accessed and possible to be seen. But what, but what you're describing to me is where it really becomes the problem, which is this siloing effect, the, 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 the algorithmic, almost mathematical thing where you're clicking on a thing because I'll, you know, I'm even, I mean, for this podcast, but even for before, you know, my interests are very disparate and I'm, I'm looking at all different kinds of shit and I want to know what people who disagree with me are saying, you know, and I found that when, when I do that, say I'm looking for like a, some fucking shithead like Jared Taylor or something. And I want to know what he had to say about whatever. And I look it up and, and, and then I'm just, I see two videos and then the next day there's like three more suggested, you know, and, and I'm, I'm, yeah. And I'm looking at it to specifically hear what, and uh, someone who I vehemently disagree with has to say about things, but it's being fed to me as if that's what I want to be looking at. And I think that, like, and you alluded to this earlier, when you're unprepared for that sort of algorithm to do work on your brain, anything's possible. And you can end up believing anything because there's no, there's no vetting. I mean, on the internet, a CNN site is liable to look to, uh, or rather, you know, a valid news site is liable to look like a fake news site, actual fake news, not the Trump term, like actually bullshit, you know? And right. you, it's, if you don't know how to look for these things, you won't know how to see it. And, and I, you know, obviously it's the responsibility of the person to, they're the ones that are doing whatever they're doing. But it's it, the fact that it's so much easier to slide one way or the other and to become ra- radicalized with the internet, that seems like the real place where it starts to get fucked up. And, and I think murkier, you know, it being out in the open is great to me. I want to know, you, no matter how fucking horrible it is, I think we should be able to know what is going on in the world. And that's more or less a good thing, better, more good than bad. But the siloing effect that you describe seems to be the real crux of the problem to me. Yeah, I, I'd agree entirely. And, and I, I think it's I, a lot of times when I, I do talks or workshops, like it, people literally like say, say something wise, mm-hmm. <laughs> like, give us some wisdom. I'm like, okay, I'll whip up some wisdom yeah. for you. Here. But my, my go-to response, which I think is pretty wise and I didn't come up with it. It's, you know, this is universal age old knowledge, but mm-hmm. it's basically that one of the most amazing things about being a human being is that we literally find what we look for in life. Mm-hmm. If if we look for reasons to be pissed off, we're going to find them everywhere we look. If we look for reasons to be inspired and connected and in love with the world and other human beings, which is a lot more difficult, mm-hmm. but it, you'll still find that everywhere you look. And I know it because I do it every day. But it takes will. It, yeah. it takes it takes mindfulness. You have to dedicate yourself to it. It takes practice, but it's so worth it to do. Um, and, and the internet's a huge factor in this, mm-hmm. in, in that it literally looks for stuff for us. Right. And it, it very easily creates this uh, phenomenon where it, the truth is entirely subjective. Yeah. And uh, it, it, it polarizes both political poles, which kind of like feed each other in yeah. this vicious cycle. 
and you you reach a point really quick where all of a sudden just your day to day reality is so different than somebody else's. And, right. and I get I talk about lenses all the time. The the lens that we resolve the world through is it basically dictates how we interact with the world. And my I, I voluntarily took on a lens that told me white people are different and superior and at war with everyone else mm-hmm. and it's all Jews fault and it had a corresponding effect on my life. And today I willfully look through a lens that says life and existence is a primally good process and that people all need compassion and they're able to give compassion and that's a beautiful thing. And we find what we look for and that's fucking awesome. Like, yeah. It's great to be alive. And, and that being said, like I am an optimist. I think as a, a human race, we're constantly progressing and, and we're doing better now than we've ever done, mm-hmm. even though there's more people than there's ever been. And that's numbers back this up. Like there's fewer people living in poverty today than there ever has been in human history. Right. Like the, the lot of the common person today worldwide is better than it ever has been ever in history and yeah. there's, there's all sorts of other data that's that's like that yeah it's like the steven pinker they, thing they yeah sight of it because it, it it we're we're in this media culture where it bleeds it leads yeah like <laughs> they'll they'll have 20 minutes and you go back to the old school like nightly news model and, and internet news kind of follows this is like you have this huge pile of outrage and horror and atrocity. And then at the end, like, Oh, look at the puppy. Right. It's very easy to lose sight of like the, the wonder that we live in and how really beautiful everything is. And, and I, I think now what's happening is, is because everybody has a camera and everybody has a voice and everybody has a means to like broadcast shit to the entire internet instantly. Uh, we're finding out about every little ugly thing that happens, whereas 50 years ago, we weren't. Right. My my mom grew up in the 50s, and she's a wonderful person. And like many older people, she often says, like, oh, when I was growing up, mm. you know, everything was so different. <laughs> it was so wonderful. You know, we, we just we went outside and we'd play all day, and, you know, we, we were distracted by TV or Internet, and there weren't, like child predators and everything was just so wonderful mm. it was the utopia shangri-la and i'm like mom when you were growing up like black people were being lynched once a week and right. sell, sell fucking postcards about it <laughs> like yeah it's it, it, you know it's 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 a, if it's wonderful or not that's a subjective thing so yeah it, exactly it, yeah my mom her childhood was wonderful there's there's no disputing that yeah but she was unaware yeah of the the horror that was happening in our country while she was experiencing this wonderful childhood. Today, you're not under a Right. Because we find out about all that shit. Yeah, I mean, it's almost like when I hear the, the, anyone talk about MAGA, a Trump supporter, make America great again, it's like, fucking great for who? You know, like, every, yeah, right. things, the, things always, it, it, in the present, when anyone says, Oh, it was so much better da, 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 uh, in another time. I, I'm, my instinct is always to be just think, why the fuck do you even think that? Like, it's just some, it's, it's, it's totally not true. And if it was right. true for you in your particular life, that's different. You know, that's different. And they should be fucking honest about that. You know, make America great again is not the same thing as being openly saying, well, 
maybe make America better for white people again, which is obviously what they don't want to be saying, but it's the fucking truth. You know what I mean? And like that yeah. is where it sort of, sort of, sort of gets insidious to me, you know, because this, this idea that something was better long ago is a just flat out wrong. But it, in truth, there's been just shitty stuff for people every waking moment of every waking life and the adversity is in life. There's no period where it was better, you know, uh, maybe oh, better exactly. for certain groups that had supremacy, but you know what, that's not a way to live. It's not a way out of this. Certainly. You know what I mean? It's not a path forward. It would be a path backward. And I know that's what they're saying they're seeking, but it's the, the message is insidious because it implies things actually were better at a different period. And, you know, maybe there's some things like I've, I've heard things like uh, life expectancy starting to go down. And there are there are some statistics that, sure, you can make an argument. This thing was better then. But I feel like those things come and go and fluctuate. And, and, and to have this nostalgic idea of that time was better than this time just seems naturally insidious and, and, and no good across the board. Um, you, you You talked about something earlier that actually caught my attention. You mentioned something about. Uh, when you made that comment about the United Colors of Benetton and the, sort of the spectrum racially on, on their billboards or something like that. I am curious, is this something, I mean, it, as, a, as a young person being radicalized, I guess anything can become a weapon in terms of the, how to radicalize a group, right? So I feel like this sort of globalism, multiculturalism thing is has been chosen as the natural opponent of this white nationalist movement that we're hearing more and more about uh, now in the news. And it was for you, was that a key part of, of your radicalization to, to as, as you're sort of being, you're being kind of told, like, look at the world that's becoming less white. Was that like an explicit message to you? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah and it's, it's been like that, uh, uh, honestly, going back to, and I'm sure there's other examples in human history, but if you, if you look at uh, the history of the Ku Klux Klan, yeah. that they, they emerged after emancipation and go, look at this. Right. Now they're voting. You know, now right. they're getting this. Like, so they're, they're, they're pointing at, and, and Hitler did the exact same thing. Yeah. Um, to, to this day, and, and in my day as well. Uh, we used to say, like, well, it's clear that Jews control television and the movies because if you look at the credits on any TV show, it reads like a Tel Aviv phone book. And, and it, it's yeah, there there are a lot of Jewish people in entertainment. What what it, and so what what the ideologies do is they take a little shred of truth, yeah, and then they spin it to suit the narrative, and they like pack it all kinds of bullshit around it, yeah, and then and, and you have to ignore all kinds of other things i.e. the reason why there's a lot of Jews in entertainment and banking and maybe jewelry or, you know, some, like, niche businesses is because for literally thousands of years, they were not allowed to be bricklayers right. or carpenters or right. plumbers or, you know, all these other trades. And so they had to just make a living any way they could. And those were the, the places where they gained footholds. And they again, through many generations of, like, we got nothing to do but be bankers. And, yeah, and, that's really and interesting, so yeah. There's that truth to it, and, and then there's also the truth that, like, most of the biggest banks in the United States and in the world were not founded by Jews. They were founded by white guys. Right. 
But but of course, when you're a, a white nationalist, you're going to be like conveniently ignorant of that. Right. And that that's an example of, of how that thought process works. And and the United Colors of Benetton thing is the same way. Right. Look, they're they're shoving this down our throat. Yeah. You'll hear that all the time. Like, well, I don't care if you know there's gay people, but they're shoving it down my throat. They're, right. They're, Showing us to to my kids, and that's unacceptable. And it's like, well, they're, they're just fucking existing. <laughs> right. and, and and honestly, for the first time, like openly in in a very very long time, right? There's many 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 uh, years, and there's actually probably on the books there's still sodomy laws that make it yeah. illegal to be gay. And and so to it, it's just again, it takes that historical myopia, the the dismissal of inconvenient information, and then you. Whatever's left there, you take that and you surround it with all your spin, and then now you have this is your truth. Right. This is why you know this is plain evidence that the that the Jews are trying to kill all the white people. And and if you go to the to the far left, they do the exact same shit. Mm. And they'll they'd be like, see, look, the white supremacist capitalist oppressor is everywhere, and it's plain as day, and all the cops are in the Klan. Right. And they're all you know it's. it's you you the more extreme you get politically the less you think critically the more binary in your thinking you become and the more traumatized you become by this outrage that you're you have a hand in creating and the more traumatized you are the less you're able to think critically and the more you're you have an affinity for binary thinking so you again we have this really like vicious feedback loop that happens and people who are perpetuating it and stuck in it are, are usually completely unaware of how it works. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think I, that all of that is really fascinating. And, and the idea that oppression in the first place is what leads to a certain group excelling at a particular thing or particular things is actually something I had never even really considered, but yeah, it's true. And, and that also points to this. It's, it's just a purely cyclical thing where it's constantly eating its own tail one thing causing the exactly. other and then that one causing the first thing and then around and around it goes. And that is something that is, I think is kind of what you're saying, which is it's hard to even step out of that and look at it when you're stuck in it, you know? And, and it seems, um, this, it, uh, something specific to your story that I've, uh, that I've heard you write and talk about is the story of your encounter with the, um, the the woman at McDonald's who uh, and I'm struck by that story. Uh, you point to the beginning of your of your sort of exit from this ideology, and uh, um, uh, that really struck me and stuck with me. And that's something that I've been a- aware of in terms of your story for a long time. If you want to just tell that story really quick, and then we can talk about it. Um, sure. Yeah. yeah it's it, and the story is important to me because it, it it's really like about how. What a, a seemingly innocuous act of kindness can literally change the path of someone's life. Right. So in my case, I dropped out of high school when I was 16, and um, I got into the skinhead thing later that year, and uh, I left home. I, I moved into a house in a very diverse part of Milwaukee with a bunch of punk rockers, and we drove them all out and replaced them with skinheads. Mm. And I was drinking myself silly every day. And my mother, who was very practical, and, and her and my dad both, like, really tried to keep me in school. And it's important to say that both my parents, like, really were doing the best they can throughout mm-hmm. this. And my, my dad 
as a disease, you know, and, and he was, it's, it's, he struggled with it. I mean, he did the best he could, uh, in spite of the alcoholism that he faced. And I, my mom was, after they kind of gave up on keeping me in school and they completely lost control of me, my mom's like, well, if you're not going to go to school, you got to work. So right. she asked a high school friend of hers who had a t-shirt printing business to give me a job. <clears throat> and he did. So at 16, I'm working 40 hours a week, third shift. I think I made, uh, $3.10 an hour, wow. which I was very stoked about. <laughs> and um, being the gifted genius that I am, it occurred to me that if I didn't, if I ate only ramen noodles, I would have more drinking money. And uh, of course, I don't mean like a good, legit bowl of ramen, like right. in a cool ramen shop. I mean like the 10 for a dollar bricks of ramen noodles. Right. What I, I ate the entire week, except for payday. On payday, I would go to McDonald's and I would get a Big Mac. Got it. I I still crack up like every time I see a McDonald's, remembering these days where I'd be like all week long, like, oh, is it payday yet? Like, oh, right. I can't wait to get that Big Mac. And it didn't occur to my gifted genius self that maybe if I didn't drink so much, I could afford <laughs> Big Mac often. I don't know which would have been you know less healthy for me. Sure, yeah. But as that was, um, the, my first day I get my page tag, which was on Wednesday. I didn't have a bank, so I go to a place where I could cash the check, and right next to there was a McDonald's, and I'm going in there to get my Big Mac, and as I come in the door, I'm kind of like stunned. I'm, I'm frozen by this elderly black woman who's working behind the counter taking orders, and she has this amazing smile mm -hmm. that's just like super genuine, super authentic, and just beaming for everybody who walks through that door. Her, her smile is like the sun. Like, the sun doesn't give a shit what color your skin is, how much money you got, who you vote for, who you love, whatever. The sun just shines on everybody. Yeah. And her smile was like that, and it froze me in my tracks, and it made me feel really uncomfortable mm. because I'm trying to hate black people, and right. it's, it, I just literally can't do that when it's this sweet elderly woman and who's given me the smile for nothing. And so I, I go get my Big Mac, and she's super nice, and I scurry out of there. A week goes by. I'm drinking, fighting, printing T-shirts, yelling about Jews taking my money and giving a lazy butt to people who don't want to work. Mm -hmm. And then payday again. I'm back at McDonald's. This time she remembers me. She remembers what I ordered. She's asking me about my day. We're talking. And I'm just like, this just sucks, because this is like blowing all of my bullshit out of the water. And it, I'm not having it. So I get my food, I get out of there. Another week goes by. This time on Saturday night, when we had a raging party that was about twice the weekly raging party, somebody shows up with a homemade tattoo machine. And again, being the gifted genius I am, it occurs to me I should get a swastika tattooed on my middle finger. Jeez. So that when people reflect my hostility... And show them that swastika on my middle finger before making a fist and blasting them in the mouth. And so I, I get the swastika tattoo, and I'm very pleased with myself. And uh, I, I went out that night and hit people with it. And uh, the the week goes on, and it's payday again, and I'm back to McDonald's. And again, I freeze in the doorway. And this time, I have this involuntary thought where I'm just like, because the woman's there again. Yeah. And I have this involuntary thought of it's like, I don't want her to see this tattoo. Yeah. And I sat there in the doorway for a minute. And I put my hand in my back pocket and I'm just like, 
doesn't even work here. Like, holy shit. And I'm waiting for a minute to see if anybody else comes to the counter. Nobody does. I'm, I'm like thinking of where the next closest McDonald's is. Wow. And it's like, you know, a half mile away and it's freezing. And ultimately the siren song of the Big Mac prevails. And I go walk into the counter and, and I'm thinking, well, I'm just going to keep my hand in my pocket. Yeah. And she won't but I got to get my money out of my pocket, which is very hard to do with your hand turned around. And as I'm paying for my order, she sees the tattoo and she says to me in the same like tone as my grandma would say to me when I was beating up my little brother, she goes, what is that on your finger? And I was a good foot taller than her, Mm. but I felt like six inches high when she asked me that. And all I could do is just like look down at my steel toed skinhead boots which probably had blood on them from the night before and just go, it's nothing. And she waited until I looked up. And when I did look up and her eyes met, she said, I know that's not who you are. You're a better person than that. And I just said, and I got my food and I literally bolted out of there. And I, I would love to tell people that I went like skipping out of McDonald's going, oh, racism, stupid, right. you know, she's so nice. And, and that was the end of it. Right. But this was actually like within the first couple months of my seven-year involvement in hate groups. Right. So for another almost seven years, I fled from this experience that I had with this woman in terror and, and tried to suppress it and pretend like it never happened. But the human psyche does not work in terms of subtraction. Yeah, we can't like erase something from our experience once it's happened. If we could, there'd be no use for psychologists right, like this. Yeah. All we can do is find a way to deal with it. And so, rather than deal with the fact that this woman showed me what it's like to be a human being, and that I had everything in the world to learn from her. And it was fucking ridiculous to think of myself as superior to her. Right. Like, I, I, all those lessons were driven home in this 30-second interaction that we had. And I spent seven years trying to suppress that with alcohol, with violence, with hate. Um, I experienced other acts of kindness uh, from the aforementioned boss who gave me a job printing T-shirts. He was Jewish. Right. And, and I'd wear swastikas into his factory, and I'd try to recruit all my white coworkers. And it gets back to my mom that I'm doing this. And my mom calls him in tears to apologize. And also to say, like, I understand if you fire him, I'd fire him if I were you. Right. And rather than fire me, the guy's name is Jack Cooper. He goes, ah, he's a good kid. Wow. He's just going through a phase. And not only did he let me keep my job, he hired my asshole skinhead buddies. Whoa. Gave them a job selling the t-shirts that I printed. <laughs> so like we're, you know, we, we, we're, we're living this like searing hypocrisy that it's yeah. driven home by this kindness in, a, in the most powerful way. And I, when people ask me how I left the, the sim, single answer, which you probably get single word answer, which you gather is not my strong suit mm-hmm. is exhaustion. Right. And the exhaustion came from all sorts of directions, but the, from the most powerful direction was from this kindness. Right. And it got me to a point where after seven years, I was literally so exhausted. I was looking for an excuse to leave. That happened in a two stage process in 1994. My girlfriend and I broke up, go figure, but hate and violence and alcohol is not a recipe for a healthy relationship (laughs) between a man and a woman. And I found myself a single parent to our 18 month old daughter and a couple of months after that, another friend of mine was shot and killed in a street fight after a concert my band had played. And by that point, I had lost count of how many friends had been incarcerated. 
and it finally hit me that if I didn't change my ways, death or prison was going to take me from my daughter. And so mm-hmm. that's how I eventually left. And and I I honestly believe that that brave woman at McDonald's and and how brave Jack Cooper was and my coworkers there also who also treated me with kindness that they they helped to create the path for me to leave and right. if it wasn't for them that second murder could have drove me further in right. and so nowadays every day I'm grateful I'm no longer that idiot. And I'm no, grateful I'm no longer living in terror of all my fellow human beings. And I, I remember that woman's kindness, and I remember Jack's kindness, and I want to do everything I can today to help cultivate kindness myself and, and uh, hopefully get other, inspire other people to do likewise. Yeah, you know what I find? I mean, that whole both of those stories are totally fascinating. And I, 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 my brain, though, I feel like sticks. It, what sticks to it is, is the you wanting to hide this the the swastika from her because you know it defies really logic but it's so human to want to hide that it's so deeply human in a way that you were not even willing to see almost you know like you're putting it on your hand was was almost the furthest thing ever from ever trying to hide it from anyone the the you only put it on your forehead to make it more visible you know <laughs> right but in right. real in in the actual interaction with this single human who is good and it's just abundantly clear that she is a good person your instinct almost without thinking about it is to is to not let her see it and who knows whether that's like shame or you just don't want to get your food spit in or whatever the fuck it is it's still this very telling and an interesting thing about even in that cloud of hate there's something there that's deeply human and 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 i think to humanize the radicalized in our minds is really really important because what you're describing is really this this kindness and this goodness is is almost it's like throwing a ball against a wall and there's no bounce you know it just deadens everything and you have no more places to put that hate and obviously like you said you didn't come running out of that mcdonald's a new man who was not hateful anymore you it drove you further but the reason it drove you further was because it was getting under your skin the interaction her her kindness was sort of like putting your mind on the fritz you know and and i think that 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 is really the kind of thing that is is important to remember if we can just stop and look at it objectively you know it sounds so tired and cliched hate breeding hate but this is an instance where this kindness actually deadened your hate and your reaction to it was to push on the hate further, but ultimately her acts, her actions and actions like that in your life sort of were creating this bed, this foundation for you to be able to get out when you were able to get out. Exactly. And and in doing so, she was truly defying everything I was about. Right. And that's something I, I talk about all the time nowadays because social justice is such a, a trendy thing and yeah. people get very passionate about it. And, and that's great. Like all the causes of social justice are my causes. Right. I like literally right. risk my life for those things on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. But when people get wrapped up into that, they can get just as dogmatic and just as uh, critical thinking impaired yeah. as all the people that they're condemning. And I've actually had talks of mine protested saying that I'm an advocate for kindness and forgiveness to make people of color easier to oppress. 
Whoa. And, and that that I get paid to not be a racist and and all kinds of like hmm. people are, are and, and it's important to understand like the people who are saying this are traumatized, right. whether they are traumatized directly by racism or traumatized by looping the the effects of racism and the cops shooting people and all sorts of things and in, in their algorithms and their social media, like they're traumatized and that's why they're like fuck forgiveness, yeah. fuck kindness. Right. You, you, I hear all the time from uh, more militant people saying things like black people have been kind and forgiving the whole time and where where has it got us? Right. I'm like, you know, look, I'm not going to claim to understand what it's like to be part of this generational trauma. Mm-hmm. I, I would never do that in a million years, million years. But I would say from my perspective and my experience and also speaking with many, many black people who have, who have tri- you know, experienced the, the most horrific racist trauma you can imagine. I would flip that question around and say, where would you be if you hadn't been kind and forgiving? Mm. I, I, I don't think that, that, that black people would have survived the horror that's been perpetrated on them without that humanity. Mm. And, and yeah, it sucks. It's wrong. It's not fair that, 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 that they've had to do that. Mm. I agree with that a thousand percent. Right. But to think, to see kindness and forgiveness as some kind of weakness or capitulation right. is, is wrong across the board. And, yeah. and when people are, I've, I've heard, oh, you know, fuck this, I'm getting an AK-47 myself. Mm. Like, come after me, motherfuckers. Mm. And I'm like, that, that's, you are putty in their hands yeah. now. Yeah, 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 that's yeah. what they're trying to provoke. They are trying to destroy your faith in humanity because they've lost theirs. Yeah. And as soon as you start saying all white people are racist, um, it's, you know, everybody's had a hand in this. You're all guilty. You're all oppressors. Like, now you're, you're playing that game. You're yeah. playing by the rules of racism, which state that, first of all, race is a legitimate scientific thing, which is highly debatable. And it also states that, that mm. it makes us more different than alike. Right. And as soon as you start buying into that shit, you are playing by racism's rules. I always, I, I put it this way quite often. Um, I, I'm a big, gnarly looking dude. And a lot of people are afraid of me just physically because I have a pretty imposing presence. And there was a time when I was, a holy terror physically. I, I know I have post-concussion syndrome, and I get a concussion if you look at me funny. Huh? But, you know, I'm not going to be brawling anymore. But I'll, I'll quite often say to some, like, snot-nosed college kid, I'm going to be like, hey, if you and I get into a steel cage and we're going to fight it out in this cage, do you want to make the rules or do you want to let me make the rules? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I'd rather make the rules. Right. Okay, then quit letting fucking white supremacy make the rules of, of your engagement with other human beings. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. I never it's, really thought about it, it like it's that. It's yeah. not a way to, to, to be victorious. Right. Uh, read Sun Tzu's Art of War. Yeah. <laughs> like it, it's, right. not, it, it's, it's just, it's so ass backwards, yet people fall into it. because. And, and again, you understand it's because of trauma. It's yeah. not because they're assholes. Right. It's because yeah. they, they've... They've gone through trauma, and but the, the answer to it is to defy hate. And when you are kind and you are forgiving and you are compassionate, that is defiance of hate. Yeah, yeah. I think there's something. I think there's something there. I mean, look, I, I, there's no. I, I fully agree with what you're saying. And I think though, what I think what trips people up out of the gate is this. There's this inherent unfairness in the fact that the response to hate the person 
um, let's say, administering the hate or expressing the hate towards another, they're taking the easy way out and sort of just releasing this valve and spraying it out on the world, spewing it out on the world. At, as a receiver of that hate, to have the onus be on you to not respond in kind, which let's all definitely say that's easier to respond in kind. It's easier to hate than it is to respond with love because that's, it's just more, it requires a lot more emotionally and even mentally just in terms of energy to expend. It's, it's, it's a more complicated thing to receive that hate and, 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 and let it bounce off of you or let it drop off of you instead of just throwing it right back. But it's, it's, it's still true ultimately that, that, that is the only viable response even despite how inherently unfair it might be that to be hated, you must work harder than the person hating. It's still just, it's just, it's just the bottom floor fact to me because, you know, the kinds of stories that you're telling about the person you worked for and the person at McDonald's, that really is the only thing that deadens hate, you know? Uh, and, and I think that, it's, I, I totally understand that response of, well, fuck it. These, this white nationalist dude blows, lets loose on this AK-47. I'm going to get one, too, and fight back. Uh, that response totally makes sense, but it obviously perpetuates the problem. You know, it's like, it's like, a, it's like a low-hanging fruit. Uh, it's almost like a clickbait thing, you know? Uh, the same oh, thing that gets us to click on those dark, terrible stories are the same things that make us respond that way, you know? Oh, for sure. It, and it's, it, it's, again, I can't blame anybody mm -hmm. for, for acting that way, yeah. but it, and, and it, and it is super unfair. Yeah. But I, again, I, I, I think of a sports analogy. So I, I'm a huge hockey is my favorite sport. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, I've uh, a bucket list is to see a game in any every NHL arena. <laughs> I think I got twelve down so far. Nice. But um, every single year, the Stanley Cup Finals just blow my mind because it's far and away the most difficult trophy to win in professional sports. Right. And my favorite part of the Stanley Cup Finals, besides the games, is is when it's all said and done, they reveal all these injuries they were playing with. Like, oh, yeah, well, you know, so-and-so had a separated shoulder since the first series. Like, or, so, you know, they're playing with a broken wrist. Right. No cartilage in their knee. Steve Eisenman led the Red Wings to a Stanley Cup in 2002 with no cartilage in his right knee for the entire playoffs. Yeah, that's painful like, to sit in there and forget playing hockey, yeah. Superhuman will to achieve a goal. And if if people playing a game can have that kind of will, to win a Stanley Cup, like we got to have that kind of will in this conflict. Yeah, and be like, yeah, it's not fair. Yeah, it sucks. Right. But we got to do what it takes to win, rather than do what might make us feel good for a minute. Right. It, 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 and it comes down to asking yourself the same question that these NHL players ask themselves every year to win the Stanley Cup: is like, am I going to do whatever it takes to win, or am I going to take the easy way out? It, that right. that's the that's the choice you have. Whether it's fair or not is, is beside the point. Right. It is, yeah. The point is, like, do you want to win or do you not want to win? Right. Hardy Kalika, who I wrote my, my right. new book with, his father was murdered along with five other people on August 5th, 2012, seven years ago this past Monday. And Hardy says that to him, forgiveness is vengeance. Mm. 
That's his vengeance against the man who murdered his father and five other people and really struck a blow against the entire worldwide sick community. We, he says that all the time, and we were doing a talk once where in the Q&A, somebody in the audience gets their phone out, they look up the dictionary definition of vengeance, like you know, punishing someone for a crime or you know, whatever. They read it right off, off their phone. And then they, they said, they, they challenged him. They said, like, again, do you, you still maintain that forgiveness is vengeance? And part of him said, absolutely, because this man, because of his suffering and his mistakes, wanted to make me suffer, and he wanted to live in my head for the rest of my life, right. and he wanted to let me know that I was not only not welcome in the United States, but I wasn't welcome on the planet Earth. Mm. And if I spend one second of energy and time hating him and in anger against him, that is time and energy that will not be available to my four children, mm. to my wife, to my widowed mother, to my career, to my duty as a citizen. And I'll be goddamned if he's going to take any of that energy. Wow. So, yes, I do forgive him. And forgiving him is the way to deny him space in my head and in my heart. And and so it is it is a, a radical act to forgive yeah. like that. It's not capitulation. Capitulation would be to sit around stewing and hating white nationalists and hating every white person you yeah. see and letting it consume you for the rest of your life. Like, that would be rolling over for this bastard. Forgiveness is basically saying, fuck you. And and beyond that, Pardeep and I have run a program called Serve to Unite since August of 13, excuse me, April 13, where we bring young people together from second grade through college to collaborate on service learning projects. It's very arts-driven. It's very connected globally. We have a roster of amazing formers and survivors called Global Mentors. And these kids address issues like racism, like homophobia, Islamophobia, but also like homelessness and mm. veterans issues and human trafficking and Holocaust education, genocide prevention. And they do it side by side with other kids from the other side of the segregation in Milwaukee. Mm. And when these kids can realize that they can have a positive impact on the world, they develop a healthy sense of identity, purpose, and belonging. Right. That effectively inoculates them against falling into these white, not just white nationalist yeah. narratives, but any kind of violent extremist narrative. Every year we've had a, an annual gathering where we get all our kids together in one place, and we have a day-long event where they there's art projects and food and music and they network and like show the service things they've been working on all year and the first one we did was in uh may of 14 after our first full school year we had about nine schools involved from second grade through college and we were donated uh historic turner's ballroom in downtown milwaukee beautiful old venue and we had 400 kids there and at the end of the day we had a group of second and third graders up on stage and they taught everybody else to sing a song called Salam. Mm. And Salam is a song that was written by Israeli and Palestinian kids about peace. And the, the verse is in Hebrew and the uh, chorus is in Arabic and you sing it in a round and these second and third graders who were from a very diverse school. So again, there's like a United Colors of Benetton mm -hmm. kind of spectrum of kids up there. They teach everybody else 
to sing this song. And before long, you have 400 young people from second grade through college, from every socioeconomic background, every ethnic background you can imagine, gay, straight, everything, all different religions. They're all singing a song of peace in Hebrew and Arabic. And as I'm experiencing this, and there's tears in my eyes, me being the pugnacious person I am, I'm like, hey, you know what? Fuck you, white nationalist. This is what we got for you, motherfucker. <laughs> this is how we respond to hate crime. Yeah. Like, you, you pull shit like attacking the Gurdwara, this is what we got for you. We're going to get young people together. They're going to love each other. Yeah. They're going to go forth in the world understanding the beauty of diversity. So that's what we got for you, bro. Yeah. Like, that's why we're doing this. Not right. not only because it's, it's amazing in itself, but if you want to fight back, yeah. this is how you fight back. And and believe me, nothing pisses them off more than that. Yeah, see, that's... Like, sitting in their yeah. face and yelling at them and calling right. them racist bigots and even attacking them. Like, they love that shit. They right. fucking live for it. Right, I mean, but, you, but when you, you can personally you attest to that. You everything they're about, and you actively demonstrate that they got nothing to be afraid of, mm. that's the greatest blow you can deliver. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you can personally attest to that. I mean, that kind of wanting that reaction is... is getting that reaction is a part and parcel of the whole picture you know and that, exactly. that 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 will definitely stick with me i mean uh, uh forgiveness is vengeance is an incredible thought and an incredible thing to say and to to hear how pardeep has lived that out is really fucking interesting i mean the 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 idea of giving people from an early age as early as you can get to them for lack of a better way of putting it and a sense of identity and a sense of belonging that seems to be the, 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 a through line to any kind of hateful ideology and the members that subscribe to it, it's like it provides them with a community and a, and a sense of belonging that they clearly didn't have elsewhere. And that to me is, is a huge, I mean, it's so clear that that's every, every kind of hateful ideology you look at it, there's, there is that and it screams out at you. Um, and, and, uh, it just, that is such a, an important piece of it, you know. I was talking to, uh, I had as a guest, uh, uh, John Stoltenberg. He's a writer, he's a feminist. And we were talking about incel culture and how when you look at an incel message board or sort of see in, in interactions between them, it's so clear that they, underneath it all, they just need a fucking buddy, you know. Oh, and, yeah. And, like, that is 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 an avenue towards letting that hate deaden on you to see that they these it's 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 almost this act of desperation and i'm not really you know asking for like empathy for this for any kind of hateful thing that anybody does or thinks or 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 says but it does it is very telling that to to be able to read these message boards and look at whether it's incel them or white nationalism or any kind of hateful group it's so clear that they just need a fucking pal you know what i mean it's like the, the community that's being provided it, it almost is the thing you know first and foremost it being hateful sort of makes that it check all these boxes that are satisfying in the moment to them because they're angry or traumatized or whatever it is but it really is this sort of like connecting with others about the hate and the connecting with others seems to be a, a big part of it uh, you know, and that's kind of what you're talking oh, about. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm a, I'm a huge fan of Fred Rogers, of Mr. Rogers. Yeah. Name, who's unfortunately no longer with us, but he, uh, he said something to the effect that 
everything that human beings do is either because of love or because of a lack of it. Hmm. And it, and it's, that's, I mean, that literally explains us yeah. in one fucking sentence. Yeah. Like that, 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 that's what, that's what human beings are all about. And, and incels, it, it, it's interesting in that the, the incel kind of, and, and honestly, like of all the hateful, stupid ideologies, I, I, it, it'd be a contest to see which one is most stupidest. But yeah. I, I, that, that's right up there. It is. Yeah. Uh, but I, I think it does speak to the gendered nature of violent extremist narratives, mm. and and working with all these different formers and w- looking at all these different forms of, of violent extremism, misogyny is plainly a common thread. Right. And, and it was in my day, and it's it's for white nationalists, it's for jihadists. Yeah, um, fuck, I, that's true. Yeah, possibly you could make an argument that the far left may be, you know, misogyny free or at least less of it than the other movements. But mm. even then, you, you could kind of take some angles and see where it is a factor. Mm. Um, I, I think that's something that we it has to be discussed. But I, I unfortunately, I think a lot of people are just taking the wrong angle at it, and the, the angle is when we make it about toxic masculinity. Mm-hmm. We're, we're basically, we're again, we're letting the problem define us. Mm. We're, we're letting the problem make the rules. And that's why, in, in a broader sense, I, I, when I do TV stuff, I inevitably, even if I tell them not to, people put anti-hate activists mm. under my name or yeah. like anti-racist. And I'm like, I'm not an anti-racist. I'm not anti-hate. I'm not anti-Trump. I'm not mm. anti-anything mm. because... I'm not going to let what I'm opposed to define who I am yeah. and how I think and how I interact with the world. I'm going to be about what I'm for yeah. rather than what I'm against. Therefore, when I talk about masculinity, I talk about a healthy masculinity. Mm. Like this is what a healthy masculinity looks like. Let's talk about that. Let's mm. let that define what we're doing rather than let all the, the bad shit define it. Right. And um, it, it's, it's a mistake that's made like all too often as, as people are, are trying to address these problems. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Fuck. Uh, you know, also, I mean, just because it just happened, we, we were talking about doing this even before the weekend of the, the El Paso shooting. I wanted to talk to Correct. you a little bit about that because it's on everybody's mind. I mean, obviously in terms of ideology, that was something that was swirling when you were in this, a part of this community. Um, the, I guess, what, what's fucking happening here with that? Like, what, I, I mean, I know the bit of the story about the, the the kid who did it and what the the whole thrust of it was. This sort of anti Mexican, anti you know, as you said, using the same language of the administration where it's invaders and all that shit. Um, this is the kind of thing where this is exactly obviously hits hits the nail right on the head about the kinds of things we're talking about. What, what is the kind of thing that, that would like, what would you fucking tell him if you had a chance with him before he does something like this? What, what could nullify this hate? I I would tell him what I tell all the people I do intervention work with, which is that I lived your life for seven years. I, I've been there. I know everything that you, everything you have to say about white nationalism. I know it, and I've said it a million times more than you have, and, I, and probably better than you've ever said it as well. 
So like, you don't have anything to teach me about where you're at ideology wise. Mm-hmm. I, I want to hear about your life. Right. I want to hear about what you went through personally. I don't want to hear about fucking Jewish conspiracies and things like that. Cause I, I know all that shit, right. but what they don't know is what it's like to live the life that I live now, right. where I literally travel around the world and I go to all the places that they're terrified to go. And I hang out with all the people that they're terrified to hang out with. And it's, it's a beautiful thing. Right. It's, it's amazing. Like I, 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 I see family everywhere I look. Mm-hmm. I've, I've been to Abu Dhabi in the United Arab Emirates. I've, I've been to inner cities all over Europe and, and uh, the United States as well as Canada. I've, I've been in Mexico. And, and when you love the world, it's going to love you back. Mm-hmm. And the only thing stopping you from doing that is your bullshit. And, and your bullshit is going to destroy your life first and foremost. Right. I, I, it, it sucks. It's an atrocity when it destroys 22 other lives. Yeah, absolutely. And, and first and foremost, like imagine those people who don't have their loved ones around than when they're around a week ago. It's hard to even like, fucking imagine think about, what yeah. it's like to be a parent and have your children, your child taken from you or be a child and have your, your father taken from you, your mother. Like it, 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 I, I try to lead them to challenge them to come walk with me for a minute and if they don't like it, they can go right back to their bullshit. Right. Nobody ever goes back. Right, right, Wait, right. Once you truly step away from that and you truly, like, let go of all your attachments to all your fear and all your, your hate and all your misery, and you understand that there's, you get a glimpse of that other world that you could be living in, uh, nobody goes back. Yeah. Yeah. I mean... I, wh- one last question before we start, start to wrap this up. I, I, as as these as the radicalization sort of happens, is it your sense that it's it's a matter of exposure to to the kinds of people that they claim to hate, or is it that they're getting only a certain kind of information about the kinds of people that they're that they purport to hate? Does that make sense? Like I think of it like yeah, uh, it does. yeah okay, yeah. Um, it, and it's it's an interesting question because it, it, when it, it, and what the crux is is defining what exposure means. Right. Um, that there's sadly, and, and I, I work with a ton of law enforcement, and they're amazing fucking people. Mm-hmm. And I'm a huge supporter of law enforcement across the board. That being said, it's just a sad fact of life that there are asshole racist cops right. who have no business being cops. Right. And uh, very often. They work in inner cities mm-hmm. where they're like literally exposed to black people throughout every working day. Right. But what they're exposed to is people at their worst. Mm. They're, they're exposed to, to people who are breaking down and who have gone through incredible trauma and are, who are, are creating incredible trauma. And, and the police are caught in this trauma loop themselves. So like if that kind of exposure, yeah, that you can have that kind of exposure and and even it'll cause you to be super racist. Sure. But when I think of exposure, like I, I'm talking about genuine connection, right? Where you sit down and, people and in you the break world. bread yeah. with them, right? Yeah, exactly. And, and you exchange stories with them, right? I, human human existence is essentially all about stories. Yes. Uh, there's a great book called Sapiens yeah. that I read recently. I always forget the author's name. I feel like a complete asshole about it. But anyway, the, the, the crux of Sapiens was that 
before the Industrial Revolution, before the Agricultural Revolution, about 70,000 years ago, is when human beings had a cognitive revolution. And what, ha what that means is that was about the time where we realized that we could not only tell stories, but we could believe stories. Right. And that allowed Homo sapiens to organize in groups of larger than 50 or 100, right. which is really like where our fellow primates max out. Yeah. You're not going to see a band of a thousand chimpanzees because they just can't get all on the same page. Right. Human beings can get on the same page because of stories. Religion's a, a prime example. You got 1.8 billion Muslims on the planet Earth that all agree that the Quran is the word of Allah, yada, yada, yada. Right. Uh, but probably the biggest example of, of stories uh, defining humanity is, is money. Mm. Yeah. It, yeah. It would be hard hard-pressed to find uh you have to go pretty far into to the wilderness to find a tribe that's so disconnected that they don't know what money is and, they, and it doesn't mean anything to them um and they may be better off that certainly could be argued but the, the fact is is that probably 90 95 of the 8 billion people on the planet earth like agree on the story of money which mm -hmm. is that it, it, nowadays it's just like i got my little plastic money spender card and yeah got money in the bank and that, you know if i if i run it through your shit at your store right. you get the money like yeah, that, yeah. that's we all agree on that story so when, when you sit down and you listen to somebody else's story you're that's when you're really connecting with them yeah. you're really having a, a a genuine exposure to who they are as a human being and i honestly believe that anybody who does that like really really does it is not going to be capable of falling into uh, any kind of violent extremist narrative, much less white nationalism. Yeah, that's that's really that's a fucking great way to put it. Yeah, uh, I, I, Sapiens. Yeah, that's a great book. I believe the author's name is Yu, Yuval Noah Har, Har, Harari. I believe. Yes. Right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That is a Thank, great book. Sorry, yeah. Yuval. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Apologies <laughs> to Yuval. Yeah. No, uh, we got it right though. Um, but yeah, no. This Arno. Thank you so much, man. This is fucking super interesting and super important and super timely stuff. And what you're doing is, is just as important and just as, as timely. And I appreciate it. And I know my listeners will too, and keep up the good work. And I really, really appreciate your time, man. Thanks, uh, Matt. I appreciate your time. It was great talking to you. Um, I'm shamelessly plugging all my do shit it. now too. Yeah, do uh, it. People can find my first book. It's called My Life After Hate. It's available on Amazon and also via my blog at mylifeafterhate.com. My latest book is called The Gift of Our Wounds with Pardeep Singh Kalika and Robin Gabby Fisher. You can find that at giftofourwounds.com. And uh, you'll learn more about Serve to Unite at servetounite.org with the number two. And finally, I do all of my intervention work with a great organization called Parents for Peace. That's uh, parentsforpeace.org with the number four. And we're a group of uh, formers of every stripe, as well as survivors and parents who have lost loved ones to violent extremism. And we have a, we are, we're resources for parents concerned about a child, as well as uh, for individuals who are caught up in, in uh, violent extremism of any kind. So if you go to the website, uh, there's a contact form there. If somebody needs help, we can help them. We also have an 800 number which uh, people can uh, access, and I'm, I'm ashamed I don't have that on hand. But if you go to the website, uh, <laughs> you know that's that's the way to do that. So if people need help or they know someone needs help, uh, parentsforpeace.org is the way to go. 
Awesome. Well, thank you, Arno, again so much, and I hope to talk to you soon, man. Yeah, likewise, Matt. Thanks a lot. All right, you take care. Cheers, you too. <laughs>